gives it away. I have, uh, well, this is, this is tough. I have really enjoyed my sweet friendship with uh, my brother, Gerald, with Brother Eddie, and I've also heard some of these men preach, and so I stand before you with fear and trembling. Uh, and uh, I don't know if I'm going to be having my, I may take them off and put them on these classes. I had uh, cataract surgery a week and a half ago. On this one, I got another one coming up this next week. And I'm just seeing weird things right now. And that, I mean, if I, if I look out of this eye, it's a, it, it's a kitchen bright. If I look out of this eye, it's romantic dinner. Kind of fuzzy and soft. I've been asked to, to talk to you about one specific topic, and that is the application of Scripture from a pastoral perspective. There's a lot of books out there that could talk about uh, observation, interpretation, and application, uh, but I want to begin with this verse. Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote his last will and testament, and he knew that he was about to die. Fought the good fight, finished my course, I kept the faith. He knew that the headsman was coming down the hall at any time. And so when a man knows that he is going to die, and he is writing to his son in the faith, his spiritual son, Timothy, you know that what's going to come out of his mouth is going to be important, it's going to be significant. So he wrote to Timothy, his last will and testament, we call it Second Timothy, but in this book, he wrote more about the Word of God than he did in any of his other books put together. It's in 2 Timothy that he writes, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but rather who handles accurately the Word of truth. So he, he speaks to Timothy about God's Word, about handling it accurately as a young Pastor. He also speaks to Timothy about how Timothy knew the Word of God from infancy, from the time you were able consciously to think. And he was taught the Word by his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And he says you were, you were taught the sacred letters. That's the word grammar, uh, from which we get the word grammar. Timothy learned his letters, apparently, from the Scriptures. It's in Timothy that he, he says that they, he's known the sacred writings that lead to salvation. It's in 2 Timothy he talks about how Scripture is God-breathed out, how it's profitable for all the things that are listed in that passage. And so he moves on to the next chapter. He says, therefore, Timothy, preach the Word. So that is his charge to Timothy. And if Timothy can get to Paul in time, if he can just get there in time. Paul says in chapter 4, bring the books, especially the parchments. Those are the scrolls on which the Old Testament was written. If you can get here in time, in time for what? Before I die. But Paul, you're about to die. Paul would say, yeah, I know. I need the word. Bring it. Got to study. So, it is in this book that he, uh, and here's where I'm going tonight. Uh, in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul's counsel is for him to handle accurately the word of truth. Literally, handling accurately means cutting straight. What was Paul's job in the community? Tent maker. He, he dealt with panels 
of skins that needed to be cut straight and matched up correctly. And that's the idea that he is bringing out today. Cutting straight the word of truth. Handling it like a skilled craftsman. Handling the word of God. Why? Because it's profitable for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Friends, that's what's called application. That is the application of scripture. Therefore, Timothy, preach the word. By the way, in Ephesians chapter 4, the pastor teacher is charged to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. You know what the word equip for? It's the same word here. The word equip is the same word that's used in Matthew 4.21 where um, uh, two of the brothers were, uh, who were fishermen were mending their nets. Equipped. It's the same word that's used of the physician, Galen, in the second century to describe a broken leg that needed to be splinted. Here's the idea. In its present condition, it cannot do, cannot fulfill what it was created for. Those nets could not, until they were mended, do that for which they were created. That leg, until it was splinted, could not do that, and healed, could not do that for which uh, it was made. So here's the idea that the pastor teacher is to equip the saints to equip us with what? With the Word of God. To equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. I thought that's what we hired the preacher for. No. He is to lead in serving in ministry, but the saints are the ones who are to do the work of the ministry. So as we apply the Word of God, all of us, everybody in the church, pastor, person in the pew, doesn't matter who they are, we are all accountable to God for applying God's Word to our own lives and as a result of that, building up the body of Christ. Because in Ephesians 4, after the saints are equipped, the body generates its own growth according to that which each individual part splotched. You got the picture there? So we are equipped with the Word of God to apply that truth and then generate the growth of the church so that people see a visible representation of Jesus's, uh, Jesus Christ in, in, a, in a, a fallen culture. Now, when, when you look at Scripture, some Scriptures have their own application just uh, built right in. Uh, uh, it's just filled with its own application. Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, that's called application, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, that's no application, does not act on them, you will be like a foolish man uh, who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Here's another immediate application. Book of James he says, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers of the word. What is that? Application. Not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man, and the Greek word here is like a male, just like a male, who, who looks in a mirror sees his natural face. When he's looked at himself, he goes away, 
forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, that's application. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, application. This man will be blessed in what he does. You want to be blessed by God what you do? There's the formula for it. Scripture is just filled with all different kinds of application. Romans 12, 1 and 2 are very famous verses. And Romans 12, 1 and 2 introduce five chapters of application. Romans 12 through 16. By saying we're not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds to live out God's will. Here's, here's I think this is really uh, a beautiful thing. The word... Uh, the word for uh, transformed is the same word that's used in Matthew 17 verse 2 when Jesus was transfigured before the disciples. In other words, who Jesus really was on the inside shines through on the outside. Okay? Romans 12 2 says, in this transformation, who we are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we are new creatures, right? Old things have passed away, new things have come. Who we are in Christ, we've been adopted, we've been forgiven. Now, who we are, our identity, who we are on the inside is to work its way out to the outside. And that's why Paul tells the Philippians, work out your own salvation, not work for it. Yeah. It's in you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. How does this happen? It's called application. Here's what we mean by application. Application is our obedience to Scripture in how we think and in what we do. Okay? We're going to come back to those two ideas that are important. Thinking and doing. So that we will become more and more who we truly are in Christ. In this process called sanctification, our new identity in Christ shines through our old man. So the old shines through, uh, the, the new shines through the old. And that is our identity in Christ. So, the challenge is, uh, it's not easy. Every day, either we're becoming more or less like Jesus. Joe Carter, the Gospel Coalition, said this, every day we're becoming either more like Jesus or less like Him. The direction we move is largely up to us. We don't drift into Christ-likeness. Romans 7 makes it clear that holiness is not our default setting, right? <laughs> Kenneth Boa, uh, wonderful brother, loves the Lord, very deep thinker, made this statement. I have never regretted any act of obedience to God. I have always regretted every act of disobedience to God. Now, think about that. So, disobedience is irrational. Obedience is the only choice that makes logical sense. We're going to talk about that here in under just a minute. So, why do we disobey? Here's why I disobey. I'm going to give you a secret of why I disobey. It's because I want to. When it comes down to the point where I look at God's Word and I look at what I want, at some point I suppress that truth and unrighteousness and I let the old man have dominion. And it is a choice that I make, and I cannot say the devil made me do it. It is a choice that I make. My sin nature wants me to wallow 
in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, even though it makes my soul miserable. So, here's a great word picture of application of Scripture. Uh, the Greek word and the Greek, the Greek New Testament word for obey is the word kupakuo. And I'm going to talk to you about that word because I think it's a great picture of really a good word picture of sanctification. It's a compound word, hupa, which means under, like uh, hupa, dermic, needle, needle that goes under the dermis, the skin, and akuo, which means uh, basically the idea of hear or to hear, hearing, like acoustics, okay? So the idea behind the word, when it is put together, is to hear under. Here, here's, the, here's the picture of it. The Word of God is over me, and I place myself under its authority. Now, when I don't want to obey, I move away from that. The idea of obedience is to hear under the authority of the Word of God. That is the picture that we see of what application looks like. In scripture. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about, about what this looks like, about the application. And, and I, I want to begin by mentioning this. When, when the Bible was written to the original recipients, it was all application, right? It was directly to them, either how, how they were to think, or what they were to specifically do, or specifically not to do. Uh, Corinthians, do this, don't do that. Galatians, believe this, don't believe that. Colossians, think this way. But for us, application requires prior, prior interpretation, which it may involve cultural translation. Getting kind of complicated here. But I would suggest to you that a sermon is a part of the process of translation. Because your pastor is trying to create in your minds, as he explains the Word of God, to equip you with the Word of God so that you can stand under its authority to explain to you what God's Word says so that he creates in your minds what the original recipients heard the first time they read it. So that it creates the same uh, dynamic that God wants you to do to either think or to obey, to make it clear in your mind. So here's, here's the task that, that God has given your pastor. He is to equip you with the Word. And he's got to study to do that. Here's the good news. Even though Scripture was given in different languages, in different cultures, in different centuries, while not all of Scripture is to us in the same way that it was, say to to the Corinthians. It is all for us. It is all applicational. It is all a part of how we are to think. So, uh, just to make sure that you understand that Scripture itself makes this point. Paul says in Romans chapter 15, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have 
hope. So the New Testament is talking about the Old Testament and says this is for us. What might, be, you know, what might surprise you a little bit is that even within the New Testament, not every text was to the same church, to the same believers in the same way. What was written to the Corinthians wasn't to the Colossians in the same way, right? What was written to the Ephesians wasn't written to Timothy in the same way, but it was all for them. Paul writes to the Colossians, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Paul writes to Timothy, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I delay, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. So it's not, and Timothy was in Ephesus, but this wasn't just the Ephesus. This was all the churches. Uh, this was his book of church order for all the churches. Here is uh, uh, something I was looking at this week. Uh, again, making the same point. If you look at Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you see the revelation to the seven churches of Asia Minor, Ephesus, Pergamum, uh, Smyrna, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So you see, each, each time it's written to the church at. But then look at the close of what he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. I wonder if he does that more than once. What do you think? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each one of the seven, because even though he's writing to one with one particular set of problems, it is for all the churches. So Paul wrote, wrote to the churches. By the way, did Paul also write to individuals? Yes. Okay. Who? Titus, Timothy, Philemon. Okay. We call those actually uh, pastoral epistles. Uh, and it's interesting if you look at the endings of all four pastoral epistles. That's Titus, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Philemon. Here's what you find at the end of 1st Timothy. Paul ends by saying, grace be with you. Plural. But Paul, you're writing to Timothy. No, he's, he's writing to everybody. <laughs> Primarily to Timothy, but it's for everybody. I wonder if the others have the same thing. 2nd Timothy. The Lord be with your spirit. Writing to Timothy. But then he concludes, grace be with you, plural. Titus, all who are with me greet you, singular, Timothy, uh, Titus. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you, plural. And then he just adds, all. Okay, you all. Philemon, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your, plural, spirit. Did Paul know by the Holy Spirit that we were going to read his mail? Yes, that he did. <laughs> so, you, you, get, you get the major point. While not all Scripture is to us in the same way, it is all for us. So, there's an intentionality embedded within Scripture that even when it's not written to us, it is for us. It is for all believers. Either to form how we are to think to develop a biblical worldview 
and to form how we are to act. Uh, the specific do's and don'ts. So let's talk about what that might look like. Here's where we're, here's where we're going with this. I want to make these four points. Application is the reciprocal dynamic of how to think and how to act. Now I've got to stop here and say, my sweet wife just looked at the handout and she said, reciprocal dynamic. <laughs> so at that point I knew I'm in big trouble. I'm going to try to explain to you what I mean by that because I think it's an important point. Application flows from good interpretation in context. Application is a process. And I want to say something about application that brings change. So those are the main four points uh, that I'm uh, going to be talking about now. I'm going to start with the first one. Uh, application is uh, a reciprocal dynamic of how to think and how to act. By reciprocal dynamic, I mean it goes in two directions. Here's what I mean. As we study and we read God's Word, our application of Scripture will always focus both on how we're to think and how we're to act. Sometimes thinking is primary, like developing a biblical worldview about something. If you, if you read 1 Peter, here's how you are to think about suffering. Inhabit that walk. Think this way. Not that specific, but it's, here's how you are to think about it. Sometimes the acting is primary. You Corinthians, stop doing that. Stop it. Now, <laughs> that's a summary of First Corinthians. Um, both are present. This, this, this thinking and doing. Here's what I mean about reciprocal. Do you remember the story when, you, when a lawyer was trying to trap Jesus and justify himself in Luke chapter 10? Didn't work. But in order to sort of weasel out of applying Jesus' teaching to his life, he said, well, who is my neighbor? I mean, okay. So the lawyer received a story that we call the Good Samaritan. And instead of who is my neighbor, Jesus asked who isn't your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jesus told the lawyer to think about how to identify neighbor and then just to make things more complicated for that young man, Jesus adds this command, go and do the same. Thinking, acting. Here's how you're to think, therefore this is what you must do. The mindset and then the action. It's both. Now listen to this. He didn't say, once your thinking is transformed to the degree that you now think the way that I think, then go and do the same. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. So, we've got this idea, first of all, of transformed minds. Because God wants us to think certain ways about each other. He wants us to think certain ways, especially about who He is, His attributes, about the world around us, about those who are not believed. He wants us to think in certain ways about all of those categories and apply specific things based upon how we think in those areas. So, he wants you and me to develop a biblical worldview about life, a biblical worldview about suffering, about identity, about purpose, about destiny, about family, about work, about purity, all of those things. He wants us to think about some of those things. For example, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Set your mind on things above, not things of the earth. 
put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, to a true knowledge. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Think on these things. Uh, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Uh, Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Romans 12, famous, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If our application of scripture is only a list of action steps without a biblical worldview, motivation will fade because there's no depth to it. No soil in which it takes root. So when your pastor helps you learn and love deep things, he is helping you learn and love and develop a biblical worldview. And I had a professor in seminary who, who was um, uh, well known as being just the most uh, entertaining, energetic, best communicator that you've ever heard. I would, I would leave that man's class wanting to change the world. And it lasted all about an hour and a half. And I love this man. He was a great godly man. There was another professor who was dry as dust. But he said the most thoughtful things that stayed with me until today and have changed my life. Now, I don't advocate being dry as dust. That's not what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying, though? There needs to be depth. So when your pastor gets into some deep weeds from time to time, hey, pastor, that's, that's doctrine. That's not practical. Yes, it is. Christ's work on the cross demonstrating his love for the church is doctrine. But that is the pattern for how a husband is to teach, uh, to treat his wife, to love on his wife. Doctrine helps you develop a biblical worldview, which is the soil in which application takes root. So, that's transformed minds, but there's also transformed living in this reciprocal dynamic. God wants us to hear under the scripture so that we act a certain way, we develop biblical behavior, and, and when it's explicit in the text and it says do this, it's a matter of direct obedience, you, you just do it. Whether you feel like it or not, you're to apply scripture, do this, don't do that. And it, listen, if you wait around for your feelings to align with God's word, you're going to be waiting a long time. God says simply, do this. Now, if a child says, but daddy, I don't feel like picking up my toys. Do you wait for that child's feelings to align with your command? Or even worse, you... Do you wait for your command to align with his feelings? That's what some parents, well anyway. <laughs> no, pick them up. So, what did you learn tonight? Pick up your toys. Here's what I'm getting at. Our minds, our minds are not transformed all at once. It's a process. But when it comes to the application of God's word, God does not put his word on hold until your mind gets there. He wants you to obey, period. But Gary, that's obedience out of duty. And I would say, yeah. What's wrong with that? 
Scripture gives multiple layers and levels of motivations for obedience. We, we obey Him because we love Him. We obey Him because we're thankful to Him because of His grace. We obey Him because He is the King of kings and Lord of lords and we are in awe of the majesty of who He is. We obey Him because uh, He tells us to. It's duty. We obey Him because we don't want to be punished. We obey Him because we want the rewards that He promises in heaven. So, Scripture gives us a lot of different uh, motivations, of levels uh, for ap application of Scripture. So, let's just, just make sure that we understand what um, we obey because He said so. And uh, if you behave towards your wife in loving ways, the emotions follow. You behave towards your friend in loving ways, the emotions follow. And here's the reciprocal application. And I think that this is a part of God's grace to us. It doesn't always matter which part comes first. My mind could be so overwhelmed by truth that I want to change my actions. Or I just need to obey even when I don't feel like it because God told me to. And in the process of consistent obedience, my mind catches up. Yes. I had a, a, this guy who uh, at, at seminary, and uh, I'll, call him, I'll call him Walter because that was his name. <laughs> anyway, he was, he was so, he was from a different country, so I had, he was so, he was the most unfriendly man I've ever met. He was, uh, you know, when, when Gerald found that years ago, we just immediately, immediate connection. Jim Sullivan was sitting back there. Jim has been a friend of mine since 1975. We've been close since then. He's been part of God's grace in my life. So when, when, when you, but with Walter, it was different. You would be walking down the uh, hall in one of the buildings, and Walter would be walking towards you, and you would say, hi, Walter. And he would just keep around. <laughs> I mean, it was just awkward, rude, and in class, he would raise his hand and take up about 10 minutes of every class with the most inane, stupid questions I've ever heard. Or at least I thought they were. And uh, it bothered a bunch of us. And we were going to be in class with this guy for four years. <laughs> and so a, a good friend of mine, a much more godly man than I, uh, said, you know, Gary, what we need to do is when Walter raises his hand, start praying for him. Yeah, I guess that's spiritual. All right, so we... So when his hand went up in class, and even had a, an annoying way of raising his hand, anyway. So... I haven't told you all that. <laughs> he, he, uh, um, so when he raised his hand, we just, you know, we just all, all group of us, two or three of us, Lord... Help him understand the answer to what he's asking. Help him to uh, love you more deeply as a result of this information. And give him a good day. 
And that's what we did. And I noticed that after uh, several months, Walter was not as annoying as he had been. What changed? I Prayer. And one day, near the end of the school year, I was down in the student dining hall, and there were all these friends of mine at other tables, and there was Walter sitting by himself at a table. And, you know, I thought, okay, I'm, all right, Lord, I know what I need to do. And I went down. I went and sat down with Walter, and we started talking. Well, I, mean, I started talking. And uh, he started answering questions, and he told me about his life. And he told me a story of rejection and abuse that I had never heard before. And I thought, my, oh, Lord, I had misunderstood this man. And uh, when we left the cafeteria, he left too. He came, came on with me because he wanted to continue to talk. And then I was headed down to the mailroom to, to the post office to get my mail. And so he kept on uh, with me down to the... And then I went to the bathroom and he came in with me there too. It just, you know, and, and we never became close. But we developed a love for that man uh, that the Lord would use him and uh, be at work in his life. And at the end of the four years at seminary, you know, they give some of these awards for high academic achievement. Guess who got the theology award? Wow. A guy named Walter. Wow. I thought, Lord, that's just not fair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just see what the Lord does and you just love it. You just love it. Okay. So that was my first point. Application is that reciprocal dynamic of thinking and acting, acting. Application, secondly, flows from good interpretation in context. You know, we've, you've heard the words observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? Application, what does it mean to me? So, uh, th those are some common questions, and people often talk about different kinds of genre, different literary kinds of, of, of uh, scriptures that we have in the Bible. Uh, we have, we have uh, didactic, that, that is, it's pretty clear how to think about this and what to do. Uh, there's apocalyptic, there's psalms, there's proverbs, there's narrative, and so forth. And there are a lot of books that are written about different kinds of genre and how to apply those. I, I want to take a different approach. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about different kinds of scriptural statements that we apply, because I think the genre thing doesn't quite hit the target as well. So here, here's where I'm going with this, and I'm still trying to develop this. This is sort of, uh, I hear my, my guinea pigs for that. So I, I hope that uh, as, we, as we work through this, I'm going to try to work through this uh, carefully. First of all, when I look at the scriptures, for in the purpose of application, we do have explicit commands. Uh, you know, the, the purpose of these are just application. Ten commandments. All right, do this, don't do that. Very clear, very clear. Love your father and your mother. Love your enemies. Pray for one another. Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, as Ephesians tells us. So there, there, there's no real leap from interpretation to application here. Does that make sense? It's, it's just clear. Do this or don't do that. This includes... The one another's. This is our horizontal application. 
well, how we're to treat one another in Scripture. What are some of the one another's? Love one another. Okay, let's take a look at some of these. They're sort of adding up there. Look at that. Isn't that amazing? Those are explicit commands that you are to obey, that I am to obey. Okay? Is that all of them? No. What am I missing? Okay. You're, you're looking for love one another, aren't you? Alright, here we go. Whoops, it's not there yet, is it? And there's one more. 18 times. 18 times. Love one another. By this will all men know that you're by the signs. You're going to show what I'm like by loving one another. So, um, with these kinds of commands, there's no, but Lord. You don't say, but Lord. With these kinds of explicit commands, you just obey them. That's what God has called us to do. So those are explicit commands. Does that make sense? All right. Here, then secondly, I'm, going to call, I'm, I'm calling these principle statements. Uh, they're not necessarily directing one explicit application, but they're stating a principle that's to be applied. And it might look different in different situations. The book of Proverbs is just filled with principle statements, principles for how we are to guide our lives. You just find them all over the place. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. That's a principle statement. But by the way, it's a very deep principle statement. Remember? He said, okay, he, what was he holding when he made that statement? A coin. Exactly. Denarius. About the size of a dime. And his question to them was, whose image is on this? Caesar's. And then he said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But that's not all he said. Who is stamped in God's image? Hmm. And to God the things that are God's. So that means we are to give ourselves to Him. So that's a principle statement, though, that it's to apply in, in lots of different ways. Uh, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. We understand how that can apply in many different situations. This is one of my favorite ones in dealing with, with people. And, and it assumes that it's not going to be possible. It assumes that it's going to be hard. As you try to love one another, you know, if possible. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Some people, uh, you don't give offense to, but they take it anyway. So, okay, and, and you can't control that. But here's what you can do. When it, as, far, as far as it depends upon you, that's just a principle statement for relationships, for getting along with, with people um, in life that I can apply to all kinds of situations. First um, Corinthians uh, 10. No temptation is overtaking you, but as such as is common to man, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with temptation, provide a way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. This principle statement is at the is at the end of a whole list of, uh, of statements that describe sins in the Old Testament. And he doesn't say you are to avoid those sins. What he says is that you are to
are to follow this guideline. And he doesn't specify which sins, because there are all kinds of sins that this applies to. Philippians 4, 5, and, and um, this is my translation, this is my life verse. Let your sweet reasonableness be known to all men. The Lord is near. Uh, King James says forbearing spirit. That's what it means, sweet reasonableness. Uh, be known to all men. The Lord is near. That doesn't necessarily mean His coming is near. It may be. It may be before we're done. But it does mean that He is always with you, even to the end of the age. He is near. So in light of His presence, the fact that I am in His presence, I am to be kind and let my sweet reasonableness be known to all men. The Lord is near. So, uh, the next kind of statements, the explicit statements, principle statements, cathartic passages. Now you're looking at that saying, oh boy, that's not really anything I want to know anything about tonight. I, I like I said, I'm, I'm putting this material together and if you've got some better ways to help me think through how to communicate it, I'm all ears. But here's what I mean. You've heard of catharsis. Dictionary meaning, the process of releasing and thereby providing relief from strong or repressed emotions. That's true. Okay. That's, I mean, people, uh, one, one of the dictionary descriptions of that is like playing the piano. Helping some people, they use that to release their emotions. Some people go running or, or whatever. They play sports. Scripture takes it to a deeper level. We are to enter. Enter. And identify with the emotions and the struggles or the pain of a scripture writer. It's like putting on a coat that fits you perfectly. You enter into that passage. And through the words and the guidance of that passage, now listen, the contours of that passage give you the guardrails for where your emotions are supposed to go. Okay, let me repeat that. The contours of that passage give you the guardrails of where you're supposed to motion, your emotions are supposed to go. How to think and how to act. How to move forward with that pain or with that struggle. Or even with that joy. Um, Here are some examples. You find them all over the place in the book of Psalms, the book of, uh, the book of Job. Um, Romans 7 is a good example where you enter that and you say, you know, there are times when I don't want to do what I'm doing and I do, I'm doing what I don't want to do. Wretched man that I am. Man, how can God love me? And you just, just feel, uh, you, you enter into that passage uh, in, in that way. Uh, and, you, and by the way, you have to in Romans 7, in order to enter the victory that's in Romans 8, where there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you enter those passages and you're guided and comforted by God's truth. If you've got a terminal illness, uh, you enter into a, a passage like uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And the future that is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. I will, I will promise you, if you have a terminal illness, you're going to read that differently. 
That, that's, you're, this is, you're going to enter into that passage. And the, and the passage, what, especially with the Psalms, the passage gives you the guardrails for where your emotions should go. Okay? And, and that is, that, that, one way of describing this is it's like an x-ray. It just exposes your soul while your Heavenly Father gives the diagnosis and the treatment and enfolds you in His love. So, uh, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, actually. Uh, and here, inferred analogies. I told you, I'm, I'm, I've got bad terms here. It's just stories, okay? Stories uh, in the Scripture. The Bible is just filled with stories that show us how to live and, and also how not, not to live. Remember Joseph's flight into Egypt? I'm sorry, Joseph's flight from Potiphar's wife in uh, uh, Genesis uh, chapter 39, where uh, Joseph had to run away uh, from Potiphar's wife. Uh, you've got David and uh, his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite and everything that happened in his life after that. So you've got a, a, a good example, you've got a bad example. Uh, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where uh, uh, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. To bring about his present result, the saving of many lives. So that you can understand from that analogy, okay, this is how I am to understand and to apply to my relationships with people, because even if they were trying to hurt me, I know God has a different purpose. These things happen as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things just as they also crave. And he doesn't give any specifics. He just says, don't crave evil things because evil things in your life are going to look different from what they look like in the lives of the uh, Israelites. Um, so, the, now there's a caution here. And the caution is this. When you're looking at the stories in the Bible, the narrative scripture, when you're looking at that, uh, the Bible's filled with those stories. Be sure that the application that you are, are, are thinking about is backed by the context. In Acts chapter 16, Paul was in the Philippian jail and God rescued him. But you don't read that passage and say, okay, well that means whenever I'm in jail unjustly, God's going to rescue me. He hadn't promised that. In Acts chapter 12, if you go back four chapters, James was put into jail and he was not rescued. And he didn't rescue Paul from his second Roman imprisonment. The application from Acts 16, Paul in the Philippian jail, is that no matter what the circumstances, God can be trusted. And you, you can't apply the attitude of Paul and Silas in jail after midnight. It some, took some time after they were beaten for them to wake up and, 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 and pull themselves together and encourage each other in the Lord. And at midnight they were praying and singing praises to God. And the text says, the prisoners heard them. <laughs> Those were the guys who were dragged through the, back to the dungeon and they were put in stocks, which Roman stocks. Uh, there were uh, adjustable leg stocks. You just put a lever and <clears throat> drags the legs apart. It was just awful. And, that's what those, and they're singing and they're praying, giving praise to God. So God, God took the attitude of Paul and Silas and uh, you never know what your attitude in the crucible of suffering and uh, how it will be used by God as a testimony before people who are watching. Sometimes I think that God's plan of evangelism is you suffer, they watch. 
That's not the way I would want him to do it, but uh, he has not consulted me. Here's the thing. And then later on, the jailer and his family and the other prisoners heard the word of the Lord as a result of that testimony. And by the way, this attitude towards suffering is backed up by First Peter. I've mentioned that a couple of times. That's a good book to inhabit. Uh, another great teaching story is from Daniel chapter 3, where Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah told Nebuchadnezzar, Our God is able to rescue us, but he may not. I love that. He may not. We don't know. Even if he doesn't, he's still the one true God, and this idol isn't, and we're not going to bow down to it. Now, uh, I'm, I'm gonna, this, this may be a way of trying to describe what I'm talking about. Explicit statements are kind of like a laser being very focused. Do this, don't do that. Principal statements are like stadium floodlights. Uh, here's the big picture of how it applies to all relationships. Cathartic passages where you, you enter into them and they are just the x-ray of your soul. And the stories are kind of like reflective truth, like the moon. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's not very good. That's not very good. I think I'm going to change that. So if you have better ideas of how to communicate that, as I said, I'm, I'm working through this. Just, just uh, let me know. But what I'm trying to communicate is God has us come to Scripture with, in different ways, but it, it, it's, it's never uh, uncontrolled. Uh, His Spirit is always guiding us into truth. Now, some sometimes people say, well, wait a minute. You can... You can, uh, you've been talking on about interpretation and application, but you can make the Bible say anything that you want it to say. The more sophisticated form of this is a philosophy called postmodernism. You can make the Bible say anything that you want it to say. Well, I have an answer for that. No, you can't. Right. Not if you interpret it according to the intended meaning of the author, which means in context. And somebody says, you can make the Bible say anything that you want it to say. I, what you need to do is to tell, tell them, mint, chocolate, chocolate chip, ice cream. And they look at you like you're looking at me and say, what are you talking about? And you, they say, you know, what I just said was, you can make the Bible say anything that you want it to say. And you say, yeah, I heard you. What you told me is, life is like a purple antelope on a field of pinfish. No, what I'm saying, what I mean by my words is, you can make the Bible say anything that you want to say. You know, and, and the thing is, they don't want you to interpret what they just said any way other than what they just meant. So they want you to respect their words. Here's what I'm getting at. When it comes to the Bible, there, there are some different interpretations uh, here and there. I am astonished that Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Bible Church, I am astonished that we're, with fallen, finite, and futile minds, we are in 95% agreement on what the Bible says. And in 100% agreement on all the essentials. That's astonishing. You think about that. As fallen as we are, that, that's an amazing truth. So here, here's what I'm getting. Not all possible interpretations are equally plausible. Uh, here's what we do. We interpret the Bible according to the context. 
love the context. There's an old saying, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. We don't force the Bible to say things that it's not saying in context. That is according to my agenda, not God's. Now, some of you may, uh, are you want to write that down? <laughs> That's kind of clever, isn't it? That's not original with me. And I like it. A text without a context is a pretext for a pretext. Love the context. Some of you have seen this verse. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Here's the deal. Pastor, your treatment of Scripture in context teaches your congregation about how you value the Word of God over you. Right, right. Application is to flow from context. It's not to be imported from the newspaper or from my own personal agenda. So you don't let the exegetical, the applicational tag wag the exegetical dog. Here's some common examples of uh, how the uh, how context is, is sometimes abused. I, I just, here's some very common ones. Uh, Matthew 18, 20, wherever two or three are gathered together therein in your midst, some people take that, that's, here we are as a church, two or three are gathered together. Well, in the context, that's talking about church discipline. That is, he's, he's been talking about going to them and saying, making sure you've got two or three witnesses. The Old Testament principle of two or three witnesses. And then after that, how many times should I forgive him? Asked Peter. So both before and after the context is all about church discipline. It's not a, it, it, it's not a definition of the church. Uh, and by the way, it's a little bit theologically inaccurate. God is there anytime. Not right. just the two or three. Right. Lo, I'm with you always. Yeah. Let your sweet reasonableness be known to all men, the Lord is near. So, uh, this one's kind of fun. Ruth 1.16. Sometimes you, you hear this one at a wedding. Wherever you go, I will go. Right. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there, I will be married. Now, who said that? Who was she talking to? Naomi. Naomi. Okay. So, um, at the wedding, the bride should turn from the groom to her future mother-in-law and say, now, now, when he dies, I'm going to come live with you. <laughs> I just have a little fun with that. <laughs> Actually, what you can say is, the kind of family love that we see here is what we want to Philippians 1.21, this is, this is an interesting statement because Paul says, to me, to live what? It's Christ, to die, it's gain. Yeah, it's more Christ. I'm going to move from the immediate to the immediate presence of Jesus. My faith is going to become sign. To me, to live is not God. To, to, to me, to live is Christ here, but to die is more Christ. It's gain. And sometimes I've, I've heard this used at funerals in a way that promotes... Um, and I'll give you sort of a worst case scenario in a way that kind of promotes a party atmosphere where grieving is discouraged and only happy tears are, are allowed. Uh, but don't take Philippians 1.21 as a pattern for grieving in Scripture. Think about this. Paul is a single man. 
And what he says is, is uh, to me, I'm, I'm leaving behind no family to breathe me, no emotional, no financial obligations for a wife and children. And uh, he, he specifies that he's speaking about himself from his perspective of being with Jesus, which is exactly what he says to me to live as Christ and to die as game. But in the context, in the very next chapter, Paul speaks about a man named Epaphroditus. And he said, and, he, and now Paul is speaking from the standpoint of somebody who we left behind. And now, he says, indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, that I should not have sorrow upon sorrow. So you, which is true for a funeral? They both are. But put them together. From the standpoint of the one who goes to be with the Lord, we know it's, it's gain. That's right. From the standpoint of those of us who are left behind, we grieve with, with tears that have, are, are mixed with our hope that we will see them again. Right. No Christian says goodbye forever. So, um, they, in other words, you take them into context. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> to me, to live is Christ, as I have seen later on in the same book. I've already talked about chapter 2. But if you go over to chapter 4, we read in verse 13, the verse I kind of played with with a meme up there. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, what is Paul saying in context? He's saying in verse 12, I can get along, I, I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Of both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So what he's saying is not, you know, when I go out on that, this is me in high school, when I go out on that wrestling mat, Lord, I want you to give me the strength to wipe his face in the mat in Jesus' name. And the, and the Lord didn't answer that prayer. <laughs> because he didn't promise I could do all things in Christ who strengthens me to apply to a wrestling match. So, here we go. <laughs> what is he talking about? Well, I've, I've learned how to get... This is the strangest missionary letter that you will ever read. Paul says, you know, you did well to, to, to uh, share with me in my affliction. Uh, in, the, in verses 14 through 17, he talks about the fact that they've already sent him three gifts. And you know what he says? I don't need any more. Thank you very much. I'm done. Don't need any more. Thank you. I appreciate that. And then he says this in verse 19. And my God shall apply all, shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What kind of church is the Philippian church? It is a giving church. And when he says all your needs, the word your is a plural pronoun. Lord, I need a jet airplane. Well, in the first place, He's writing to a church that's shown itself to be generous 
and he's saying God is applying what he says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. God will supply your ability uh, to give because you are a giving church. So, uh, and it's also uh, to that church, not to an individual. And then he concludes, now to our God be the glory forever and ever. Um, now I'm going to speak as a pastor here for just a, a moment because I, I fully believe that when I respect scripture in context before my church, that uh, that communicates to my people that God is the one who's speaking of my emotional feelings. And uh, that I'm not trying to make the text say what it doesn't quite say. So, <clears throat> but there are times, there are times when I've got this great application. It's just not in the text. Hmm. It doesn't fit. I thought it did. And it came out of my study, but it doesn't quite fit with that passage, so what do I do with it? How do I shoehorn it in? You don't. You paste it into a future sermon. Or put it in your blog if you do that. Or send it out to an email to the church with the text that it does apply from and say, my, my brothers and sisters, this has been on my heart. And it didn't fit with Sunday, but I really wanted to share this with you, and here it is. So, but just don't preach it from as if it's from a text that it's not from. And now I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to get into something that uh, some people might uh, refer as controversial, but that has to do with um, uh, the uh, an extreme example of what I would I regard as inappropriate application, and that has to do with the Word of Faith movement. Where some people call it the prosperity gospel, some people call it the name and claim it, positive confession. It promotes a transactional view of God, uh, where if you do X, God is obligated to do Y, and, and He's not sovereign, you are. Uh, at least it comes across that way. Whatever is mentioned within Scripture is applied to be named and claimed through the word of faith, which creates the objective reality. And the focus here is not on eternity. The focus is on immediate gratification. At least it, it comes across that way quite often. What this does is this bypasses context. And it avoids actual interpretation. Listen, it separates application from any constraints of the context. In my opinion, it treat, treats Scripture more like it's a magical spell than the Word of God. Um, and it, it also bypasses the spiritual disciplines of progressive sanctification and it substitutes affirmations when there's no biblical warrant for it. There's a claim, but there's no spiritual work. It's not, make me loving, Lord, but I am loving. Not, lead us not into temptation, but I am victorious over temptation. Not, Lord, please heal John from cancer, but John is healed. Not, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will that thine be done, but instead, this cup will pass from me. Um, and uh, I, let's turn off the video for just a moment. Okay. Application is a, is a process. Uh, and this is the third point I put up. These last two points will go pretty quickly. Don't be discouraged 
if change doesn't happen all at once. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with others as you apply scripture because the Lord is patient with you. If you say, Lord, never again will I do this sin or that sin. I want you to know I am never, ever going to do that again. Right now, Lord, I'm nailing this down. And you know what? I think he will love you for the passion of that moment. But <laughs> that's not the way he said that. He said it, that you take up your cross daily. And that by his grace, each new day is a clean slate. And we start over by God's grace with that clean slate. He will love you for that statement. He will pat you on the head for it. But I am so glad that each day is a clean slate. Here's the deal. We all know more than we're living. Okay? And we are accountable to live what we know. But the gap in Romans 7, oh, but the gap in Romans 7, here's what I know, but here's what I'm living, wretched man that I am. And the answer in Romans 7 is not, you know you need to try really hard. Try harder. But instead, to I'm going to come back to this, but to rest in the Spirit, be patient and grow in grace. Maybe challenge your folks, as Hebrews 5 does, that we are to grow and to graduate from milk to meat. That's right. Hebrews 5. Milk to solid food. Babies are born and babies are cute. Baby Christians are born again. And they're cute. They say cute things. Babies are adorable. Both kinds of babies have to be guided away from self-destructive things. Both kinds of babies sometimes make smelly messes. And both of them need to grow in a mature. At, a, at the physical level, it's tragic when a baby does not grow. But it's even sadder at the spiritual level. So, when you, I, I ask my folks uh, at my church this. Are you growing in your mindset, in, in your, your thinking, and your acting? Um, have you been saved five years? Have you been saved ten years? Have you been saved twenty years? Have you been saved twenty years? Or have you been saved one year twenty times? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Come on. So are you... How are you growing? Is what you're dealing with this year the same as it was in the same way last year? Or have you grown past that? And here's where we help with one another's as we journey together on that road because we do that together. Here's my last point. Application that brings change is the work of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 7, you have defeat. In Romans 8, you have victory. And the difference is not the pastor's application, but the Holy Spirit's work. In Romans 7, defeat and frustration, the Spirit is mentioned zero times. Human Spirit is mentioned once, but Holy Spirit one, zero times. Look at chapter 8. Victory, glorification, and the Spirit is mentioned 18 times. That is the difference that makes the difference. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and to, how many of you are pastors here? Can I see your hands? Okay, all over the place. Uh, 
And, and here's where, brothers, I'm just right alongside with you. There is freedom for us here. <laughs> the transformation of people in your church does not depend upon your laser-focused application. The Holy Spirit is not bound by the way you frame your application. Uh, it, if I thought that eternal change depended upon me, I'd be a basket case. They would paralyze me for getting something wrong. But God doesn't place that burden on the pastors. This gives us, as pastors, freedom. I've had, I've had people come into church. I was not at all preaching on whatever it was they were dealing with, but they left with their hearts warmed and comforted by God simply because they were hearing under the God of Scripture and the Ancient of Days enfolded them in His arms mm -hmm. in that service. didn't have anything to do really with what I said. It had more to do with what God was doing in their hearts. It said, hurting and open to Him. So there's just real freedom here for uh, pastors. Uh, uh, I want you to think about, about this. I'm just going to put a bunch of things up here. here here's what I want to say. Uh, what is your pastor's job? Your pastor's job is not to point the application to one person group in your church. Uh, now, if it flows from the exegesis of the text and the exegetical shoe fits, then you invite them to wear it. But don't try to shoehorn something in that doesn't fit and imply, thus says the Lord, there is only one Holy Spirit and you're not Him. I, I know, <laughs> I was so, I remember one Sunday, I was so revved up uh, for a great application that I knew was very specific to one contentious person in my congregation. I knew that the Holy Spirit was going to lay them up. I knew it. I was waiting for it. And they were out of town. <laughs> another time, another time, there was a person who, in my mind, I just was, was preaching and I knew the Spirit was targeting them. I knew it. I knew the Spirit was targeting them. And after the service, she rushed up to me and she just gushed. Oh, Gary, these people needed that. <laughs> Uh, uh, what, what is your pastor's job? Preach the word. That's right. That's right. To the, the, he is to live it, but he is to study it and to be faithful in handling accurately the word of truth, just as we all are to do. If the application, here's the deal if the application of Scripture brings about eternal change, the effect is not explainable in terms of your preacher as a cause. Okay? but points beyond him to the Holy Spirit. And that's where your preacher can look at his ministry and with joy say, it's not my ministry. That's right. It's God's ministry. That's right. God is doing this, and I am his vessel, and I am being used. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Amen. Now, what is the congregation's job? The congregation's job is to take responsibility to apply Scripture. He equips you, the saints, with the Word of God, to do the work of God by the love of God. So, uh, he is to equip the saints. The saints are to apply the scriptures to one another. So, make sure that you give him time and study to equip you. Make sure that you pray for him because 
Uh, pastures are high on Satan's target-rich environment. Mm -hmm. Roaring lions he, he may devour. And your pastor is today special. Mm -hmm. And all of us are. In fact, if we're trying to be faithful to the Lord. Uh, 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 James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. When he is in the word for you, he is saying, okay, Holy Spirit, put a target on my back. He is accountable for that which he is teaching. To me, the only thing more frightening than being a Bible teacher is not being a Bible teacher when God has called me to do that. Uh, if I preach about patience, what am I like in the Hamilton Place parking lot that afternoon when somebody cuts me off? Come on. <laughs> what am I like in the restaurant in the church? Or in the way that I treat my wife, do I belittle her from the pulpit with jokes? Peter says, you grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, lest your prayers be hindered. So, uh, you don't, God is saying, you want me to hear your prayers? You treat your wife well. <laughs> Live with your wife in an understanding way. Uh, but what if next Sunday, if I blow it in the Hamilton Place parking lot, I step up in the pulpit and say, you know, last week I preached on patience and I lost my temper in the Hamilton Place parking lot. And they saw you do it. And you're up there confessing that. I, I here's, and you tell them, this is what I'm doing now. This is what God showed me. And this is how, you know what that means? That means to your church, you are standing with them under, linked arm in arm, hearing under the Word of God together. That's right. That's you don't put your pastor on a pedestal because I promise you, if he's a man of God, he does not want to be there. Amen. I know some pastors struggle with admitting their own, uh, their own uh, failures, but, uh, and, and, and the attitude is, you know, I don't want to disillusion my people. Well, excuse me. <laughs> they already know. <laughs> uh, Paul called himself the what of sinners? Chiefest of sinners. Who was the guy that wrote, Oh, wretched man that I am? Yeah, Paul did. Okay. The only person who belongs on the pedestal is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. And his, your pastor stands alongside you, hearing under the Word of God together as we apply Scripture and let the Holy Spirit bring about eternal change. And the, the good news is that's His work. And we rejoice in His power to bring it about. Thank you for letting me go over and talk to you. Amen.